Trust is a valuable component of every relationship. You know, when we just mention the word trust, we quickly think of how important trust is to our marriages, uh, to our parenting, and to our friendships. And yet, and yet this thing about trust is that it's delicate. And, and when trust is damaged, trust is difficult to rebuild. And in some ways it's easily given, but it's tough to recover. Well, as we enter 2022, we're gonna re-engage our study of 2 Corinthians that we called life in these clay pots. And we're gonna take a, 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 a little bit of a, a transition into another portion of the 2 Corinthians. And we're gonna spend the next number of weeks just talking and thinking and reflecting on whether or not our lives as followers of Christ are trustworthy. It's, it's an important question. It's, it's a big question. Uh, what makes it? What is it that makes our lives trustworthy? Um, and, and to kind of set this up, I want to back up and kind of just kind of go back and, and, and gain some perspective over the past three to five years. Uh, these years have been challenging for the church in America, to say the least. I went back and I grabbed just a half dozen stories. I could have grabbed many, many more, but these represent uh, the challenges that we have faced in recent years. Uh, sexual abuse cases in the Southern Baptist churches were reported by the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express on February 10th, 2019. And what the report found was roughly 380 pastors, lay leaders, and volunteers had faced allegations of sexual misconduct that had been carefully hidden. And they're going all the way back to 1998, some 700 known victims were identified. Uh, in 2018, uh, the resignation of Willow Creek Community Church's top leaders uh, following sexual harassment allegations against pastor, their founding pastor, Bill Hybels, and it, it sent shockwaves um, you know, far from the church's base in Chicago and then the suburbs. You see, at that time, there were few bigger names in evangelicalism than Bill Hybels. And few churches more influential around the globe than Willow Creek. Um, in late 2020 and early 2021, internationally respected Christian apologist and theologian Ravi Zacharias was exposed for years of abuse of his position, sexual misconduct and predatory behavior. In 2021, Christianity Today published its widely acclaimed podcast series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, the podcast gave listeners a thoughtful look inside Seattle's Mars Hill Church. Uh, Mars Hill was founded in 1996, and the church and its pastor, Mark Driscoll, experienced uh, explosive growth in a part of the country where it wasn't expected, Seattle. Wildly, widely celebrated for its innovative and influential presence in Seattle, Driscoll gained national prominence. And he became the person that many churches wanted to imitate. 
but everything crashed just as dramatically in 2014. And the church was shipwrecked by Driscoll's misuse of celebrity, power, and wealth. During the same period of time, a debate raged in this country around the role evangelicals played in electing and supporting President Trump. In May of 2020, uh, respected Christian historian Kristen Kobes Dumez published uh, her book, Jesus in John Wayne how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And she had been watching for decades, and she documented how whatever we may think about President Trump, she documented how, how what was going on in our country reflected a culmination of evangelical ambition for political influence and power that had been present the last 60 years. And it had been driving so many things, almost a, a, an ambition, a thirst for political power. And, and it reached kind of a, a hiatus or a tipping point. And, and her book has resulted in just lots of needed self-examination by some. And as you would imagine, no small reaction from others. It's a lot to absorb. And, and that doesn't even begin to uh, touch upon all of the, uh, the skirmishes and the stuff that goes on in, in every local church. You know, and so you, you kind of put on the hat of someone who stands outside the church watching all of this, and you wonder, what, what are they thinking? Um, even for those of us who are a part of the church, there's a certain awkwardness. You know, maybe you have felt like I have felt over the past couple of years, it's not always easy to explain or defend the church today. <laughs> maybe, maybe you identify with a, a letter that was written by an artist who came to Christ, and as she came to Christ, she had a, she had a really difficult time trying to explain to her artistic community what exactly she had done. Among my artist friends, I feel pretty defensive about my life. I mean, really, about going to church. They have no context or no idea for what I'm doing and are completely bewildered by my decision. So I try to be un as, as unobtrusive about it as I can. But as my church life takes on more and more importance, in fact, it's now essential to my spiritual survival. It, it's hard to shield it from my friends. I feel protective of it, not wanting it to be dismissed or minimized or trivialized. But the response is so strong that it's increasingly difficult to keep it quiet. It's not exactly that I'm ashamed or embarrassed. I just don't want it belittled. A longtime friend who doesn't know Jesus, a, a superb artist, just the other day was appalled. And she asked me, what is this I hear about you going to church? Another found out I was going on a three-week mission trip to Haiti and was incredulous. You, you're going to Haiti with a church group? What's gotten into you? 
I don't feel strong enough to defend all my actions all the time. My friends would accept me far more, far more readily if they found out I was in some bizarre cult involving exotic, strange activities like black magic or experiments and levitation than they do me going to church. And so I am feeling raw and cold and vulnerable and something of a fool. Now, I guess I don't feel too badly about being a fool within the context of our world today. Uh, from the place from which they look at me, I, I don't have much to show for my life. I can't point to a, a life completely mended. I'm pretty broken. Uh, many of the sorrows and difficulties seem mended for a time only to bust open again. And to tell you the truth, the thing I'm most excited about is I haven't been on medication since June. And for that, I feel grateful. And here's, here's the paragraph I wanted, wanted us to hear. When I try to explain myself to those friends, or to these friends, I, I feel as if I am suspended in a hang glider between the material and the immaterial, casting a shadow down far below, and they say, just look, it's nothing but a shadow, it's not real. Perhaps it takes a fool to savor the joy of shadow work. The shadow cast as I am attending to the unknown, the unpaid for, but freely given. <laughs> See, there's, in that letter, there's no romantic illusions about the church. You see, the reality is, it's something that we can't always easily explain or defend. And especially in a context when so much is taking place around us that is raising questions, uh, it's like a shadow. And, and so when you look at our image this morning, it's like a shadow. A seemingly fragile church suspended between heaven and earth that, that casts a shadow but when you look closely at the shadow, we might see something of God. See, that's the beauty of, of this thing called the church. Now, of course, in this cultural moment, uh, a sobering question is being raised by a thoughtful and growing chorus of voices. Has the church lost the trust of the very people we're called to influence for Christ? Boy, linger with that one for a while. Has the church lost the trust of the very people we're called to influence for Christ? And in kind of a corollary, is it time for us to take an honest look at ourselves and who we've become? You know, another reality causing concern is what we're learning from our experience with COVID. Here we are a couple of years in, still navigating just the realities of it today. And because we're still living with the lingering impacts of COVID, it's, it's too early just yet to land on any conclusions too firmly. But those who study such things suggest that somewhere between 25 and 35% of the people will not attend, return to the churches they attended before COVID or any church. Now, now think about that losing a third of the people attending churches. Um, is something being exposed 
that is deeper than the convenience of simply staying at home on Sundays to watch service online in our pajamas? Is there something bigger that's stirring? Maybe. Maybe we've allowed church attendance to be seen as the barometer of discipleship. And that what we've grown up over the past number of decades is, is we're comfortable with the fact that attending church, we, we, we really have become, we're, we're really good at far more attenders than disciples. disciples. And maybe, maybe we're more of a consumer culture than we dare be honest about. And what people gravitate to are, are, are things that kind of satisfy certain things. And, and it's, it's less and less about following Jesus. And maybe some of the ways that we think about church and the ways we do church need to be revisited and revised. Amazing, maybe, and this is a hard one for those of us who are spiritual leaders, pastors, and elders, maybe some of our own people have lost trust in us. And they've lost trust in the very churches they're attending. But here's the, here's, the, here's the biggest question. Maybe we've lost sight of what defines us as followers of Jesus. You know, what is it that is really worthy of people's trust? Imitation and devotion. Do, do we even know You see, trust is desperately needed as we seek to represent Jesus in today's world. You see, when we lose trust, we lose influence. And that's gonna kind of set the stage for these next number of weeks as we, as we turn this question around and explore it and examine it. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. Um, this question of trust is not new. This is not a, a, a 21st century cultural phenomenon. Um, it's, it's been present uh, throughout history. Uh, Paul faced trust and credibility questions. In fact, arguably, this letter that we've been looking at in 2 Corinthians, um, it's what led Paul to write it. Uh, listen to something uh, he wrote at the very beginning, back in chapter 3. You don't need to turn to it. Paul says, are we, are we needing to commend ourselves to you again? You see, behind that is Paul saying, do, do, do you not trust us? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you and from you? You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Trust. And what followed in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5 was Paul's description of what makes our lives distinctive because of the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit. And we looked at those chapters in depth in August through, through up until Thanksgiving. But we've been away from the story since Thanksgiving. And so it's important that we get back into the story. Because what unfolds in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 is, is profoundly linked to what happens in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And if you are like me, I've forgotten chapters 3, 4, and 5. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take a few moments and I'm going to remind us of what we learned. And we're going to take a, just a quick overview and walk through. For those of you who were with us last fall, this will serve as a, a needed reminder. For those of you who joined us later in the year, this will get you involved. We'll all be starting this year together. You know, from the same frame of reference and from the same perspective. And, and what these chapters, kind of the big idea is the change that takes place because of Jesus is profoundly liberating and it's ongoing, it's continuous. Uh, look with me if you, if you want to follow along, it'll be up on the screen, but chapter three, uh, verse 16. Uh, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, when everyone makes this decision to become a follower of Jesus, a veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You see, Jesus opens the door to a, a very distinctive way of life and ministry. He, he describes it as a life without veils. No pretense, no posing, no posturing. Uh, because of Jesus, we are set free to live honestly and openly and transparently. He, he uses the word boldly. Not in the sense of being assertive, but in the sense of being transparent. See, each of our lives uniquely reflect the image of God and the craftsmanship of Jesus. And, and so, I, I want you to take a moment. You're gonna, this is going to be awkward, maybe a little bit. Just, I want you to just look around the room for a moment. Just take a moment and look around the room. Just, just look around the people in the room. Just take a moment and just kind of look around you. Uh, not too weird. Just, just notice the people around you and... And here's what I want you to see. Everybody in this room, everyone watching at home, everyone who can't, everyone we see is somebody in whom the spirit of God is at work, healing, uh, breaking, softening, changing, maturing. It's transforming people into the glory of God. We're all at different places, different seasons, different stories, different histories, different, but we're all involved in this mysterious, miraculous work of being changed uh, by the Spirit of God. It changes the way that you and I see ourselves. It changes the way that we, we, we see others. And then Paul moved quickly into chapter four where he wrote, therefore, uh, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, this, this, this phenomenal work that Jesus is doing in the lives of people, and in us and others, we don't lose heart, Paul says. It gives us hope. See, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, now I want you to think with me about trust when you read these verses. Integrity is a big deal. It's important to trust. You see, as people become more like Jesus in this way of life, we have nothing to hide. But I'm old enough to know something by experience. The older we get, the better we get at faking it. You know, we hang around this church culture 
We learn the right things to say and do. We, we kind of play along. And, and, and what, what people see may look like it's the real deal. But you kind of peek behind the curtains and it's not. And, and so what Paul is saying in this relationship with Jesus, there's, there's nothing to hide. Uh, there's, there's no place for that. Uh, we renounce all secretive and shameful ways of living. What did a lot of the stories that I referred to at the beginning have in common? Big secrets. Shameful secrets. And, and Paul says we renounce all of that. Uh, we, we don't make allowances or excuses for dishonesty or deception. And, and when we are disheartened by the spiritual drift or passivity or indifference or resistance or sin or opposition that we may see around us, we choose not to allow our frustration to lead us to take matters into our own hands in unhealthy ways. Somehow thinking we can convince or pressure people to change or stay on course. Now what, now what Paul says is we simply talk plainly about Jesus. We allow the truth about Jesus to speak for itself and trust the spirit with the convincing. Now here's, here's the kicker. And this is where it begins to push us a little bit. The way we invite people to consider Jesus is by inviting them to consider us. Well, that's, that's a different deal, isn't it? Um, you see, as, as people see the truth about Jesus lived out in our lives, it, it has this way of kind of getting behind their mental barriers and, and, and he says it appeals to their conscience. And, and so while people may have issues with the church, they may look at all that's going on in the culture and for good reason shake their head and, and, and just be just kind of over it all. While people may have issues with the church or issues with Christianity, the presence of Jesus they observe in our lives at least gives them pause. You see, the reality of a lived out Jesus, not just a talked about Jesus, but a lived out Jesus hangs around. It lingers. It's not easily dismissed. In fact, I would argue it's where Jesus does his finest work. And you, if you are with us, here is the question we posed. Can we get comfortable living as an unpretentious community of Jesus' followers. Can we get comfortable not needing to make a splash or impress or wow or whatever? Can we, can we get comfortable just living as an unpretentious community of Jesus' followers who authentically display Jesus in the ways we live our lives and be people who just talk plainly about Jesus? Can we get rid of all the stuff and just live differently and then talk honestly about Jesus. Well, Paul goes on. Uh, verse seven of chapter four, but we have this treasure in jars of clay uh, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around on our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. And this becomes kind of the the hinge point of this whole section. You see, our lives are intended by God to display something. Each of your lives were intended to display something, the very presence and the power of God, but he's gonna do it in a way that's very different, very counterintuitive to the ways we typically think. You see, God's presence is most beautifully and powerfully displayed through our imperfections, our cracks, our flaws, our brokenness, even our sin. Imagine that. That God has, has kind of uh, just turned things upside down and, and he says, the way I'm gonna display my power is, is through what's so broken about your lives. But how do we resist this? Oh my gosh. You know, if you were with us a few months ago, this was the week that I, I illustrated with my deeply loved cereal bowl in the fine china. And we broke the cereal bowl. And we talked about the fact that we, we much prefer for others to see us as beautiful china. And so we work hard to prevent others from seeing our flaws, our imperfections, our brokenness. I hear stories of all the time within our church family of, of relationships going sideways and people getting struggling in their marriages and, and everyone begin, and the, the tendency is to want to cover up and protect and hide and, and not allow. And, but here's the problem. The image we work so hard to present prevents people from seeing God's image in us. And therein lies the problem. And we may, we may do, a, do a good job convincing people that we are fine China. And they may, they may see it. But what they won't see is the image of Christ. And, and, and so that's why authenticity with our weakness is so winsome People trust it. See, trust, they, they trust it, they, they believe it. It's, it's something they identify with. It's why struggling and suffering play such a purposeful role in our spiritual journey. This is the upside down way that God works, the kingdom paradox of the way of Jesus, that, that even though we resist it, he begins breaking our lives through struggles, through difficulty, through suffering, because he knows something that we have a hard time getting comfortable with, that that's the process by which he's releasing something good, and so the struggles and the suffering actually become an expression of God's goodness. And this kingdom paradox of the way of Jesus, that the life of Jesus actually flowed from the death of Jesus, and and what was true for Jesus is also true for us. Our spiritual maturity is reflected in consenting and cooperating with God's pathway of humility, brokenness, and weakness. See, that's it. That's how you and I display that we're on track and growing. Not that we have arrived to some idealized, romanticized destination, but that we're cooperating with what God is doing because we're all broken, we're all sinful. 
and we're cooperating with what God is doing. And chapter four ended in a glorious and hope-filled way. He, way he, he said, therefore, we don't lose heart because we know that we don't lose heart. In these great verses, though outwardly we are wasting away, these pots are being broken and struggles, suffering, difficulty. Outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And then he quickly moved into chapter 5. And by the end of chapter 5, he, he gave us this challenge. And this has kind of walked us into where we ended at Thanksgiving. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, what beats deep within us now is Christ's love for people. It's what compels us. I mean, following Jesus compels us to something. And, and, and he now brings us all together, and, and, and our desire to influence people flows from a warm-hearted response to everything Jesus has done for us and for everyone. And, and so verse 16, he says, so from now on, because of all this, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Rather than evaluating and judging people by what is obvious, we're no longer looking at what everyone sees. So rather than evaluating and judging people by what is obvious, we see what is not so obvious. We see them as Jesus sees them and who they might become with Jesus in their lives. We believe all people, all people can be restored to that relationship. All people can become new creations. Every life, no matter how sinful, how wasted, how empty, how broken, can become a part of the new creation God is bringing about, can be restored to lives of peace and joy and usefulness. And then he says this remarkable thing in verse 18. All this is from God. This is what God is doing. All this is from God. This is his way who reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the, word to him, the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. Boy, I get stuck with that phrase every time. Jesus doesn't count the sins of people against them. Why do we? You see, there's this powerful movement of what's going on. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We implore you, be reconciled. See, we are restorers. We are reconcilers. We're ambassadors. We, we share our lives with Jesus with a generous hospitality. And we invite people around us to see and taste life with Jesus that they, they experience as they get close to us. We invest in people for the long haul in all the conversations and experiences that make up life and relationship. And we stop thinking of every conversation as sneaky evangelistic raids into people's sinful lives. We simply love them as Jesus would love them. And when those opportunities to just talk plainly about Jesus 
emerge, we, we do so in natural and gracious ways. Now, this was my introduction to chapter six. <laughs> because chapter six, you know, sometimes as you're reading your English Bibles, chapter divisions interfere with the flow of the story. I hope you realize that the chapters and verses that you have were, were not part of the originals. They were added later. But when we come to chapter six, we end chapter five, we begin chapter six, what's our assumption? That with the new chapter, we're beginning a different subject. We're not. It's not. And when you begin to look at chapter six, and this is why I took so much time this morning in reconnecting us to the story, when we understand the way it was written, its purpose becomes crystal clear. Paul writes this in verse one, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. You and I are God's co-workers. A literal translation would be as those working together with God. As those working together with God. Sometimes we take this phrase, God's co-workers, and we kind of relegate it to a pastor or a spiritual leader or a missionary. He's talking to all of us. And it's such a descriptive phrase. We, we partner, uh, the moment we became a follower of Jesus, we entered into a partnership and we partner and participate with God's purposes. And it's turned something on our head because too often we think that when we trust Jesus, we're inviting God into our lives. The reality is we've been invited into his. And that changes our whole perspective And so now we bend our dreams, our desires, our direction around Jesus' dreams, Jesus' desires, and Jesus' direction. How do we advance and further his life? It's not about advancing our life. But what's Paul's concern here? That we not receive God's grace in vain. God's grace is everything we've just highlighted from chapters three through five. In this context, Paul is not talking about just that moment you came to Christ. He's talking about this way of life. All that we've been invited into, all that it describes, all that characterizes it. He he, he says that's God's grace and, and this word for vain is a sobering word. It means wasted or empty or without result. So so Paul's concern is the generosity of all that God has made available to you and me and this way of life in ministry that it not be wasted on us. Boy, that's a sobering thought. That's exactly what Paul wanted. See, you need to pause and, and reflect on that. And, and this is not something that we have the luxury of putting off until it's more comfortable or more convenient. See, he goes on in verse two. Um, 
In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And he, he quotes uh, an Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah, which described the unfolding of God's kingdom purposes on earth. And, and that there's an urgency that as God unravels and unfolds and unpacks his purposes, something is moving and we have these opportunities to participate in them and, and not miss what God is doing. And, and what he's saying is this way of life and ministry with Jesus is, is not just something we, we have the luxury. It's not just for those who are ready or interested. It's the very expression of God's favor. It's the outworking of God's purposes on earth today. And so minimizing or ignoring it amounts to minimizing or ignoring God's favor. <laughs> That's no small thing. You see, and this wasn't an academic appeal for Paul. We'll look at these verses later, but a little bit later in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, Paul wrote this. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've opened wide our hearts to you. This is an emotional appeal. This is not an intellectual appeal. Paul says, we've opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Your hearts are closed. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm begging you. Open wide your hearts to all that God has been and desires to do through your life. Show by your lives that God's grace has not been wasted on you. And you know, what better way for us to begin 2022? You know, when we start this conversation, this is where this whole conversation about what's it mean to be trustworthy for people to look at our lives and trust us, the compelling question is this. Do our lives reflect that God's grace has been doing something remarkable in us that invites people to Jesus? or has it been wasted on us? It's a good question. It's a hard question. But it's the question of trust. So Father, as we begin this journey of trust, uh, we acknowledge with gratitude all that you have made available to us. And Father, how easy it is for us to become so distracted by so much of life. Father, as we begin this new year, our longing, our desire is that our lives be useful. That our lives be full and fulfilled and that our, that our lives represent the fullness and the freedom 
of all that Jesus has made available to us. And Father, as, as weighty as the question is, it's actually a question of freedom. And so Father, as, as, as Paul appealed, I, I appeal to the Grace family, may we open wide our hearts. what God desires for us this year and break us out of the apathy and the indifference and the passivity and the cynicism and the skepticism and release something new, something fresh. In Jesus' name, amen.